So I'm not a pro shop user. No, you're not. They're a great sponsor of ours. And we hear a lot about pro shop from you, Jim. And one thing that's kind of surprising to me in, in a really good way for them is as I travel, I spend about a third of my life on the road. Yeah. As I travel, this year I've had like three or four different companies yeah. that are all either using ProShop and have amazing things to say about really? it. Really? Or they're like one time I walked in and they were telling me, yeah, that's ProShop on the screen, but we're just like analyzing which ERP we were going to search They're blowing to. up, Nick. I mean, seriously, I know, I mean, just from talking to Paul, he's a busy man and you're just hearing about him everywhere. I was like, look, I don't use ProShop, but everyone I know who does absolutely loves it. So, But in all seriousness, you're going into these shops across America yeah. and you see it on their yeah. screen and you're like, oh my God, yeah. This- I've seen that before. And I'm like, is that ProShop? They're like, yeah. yeah. And one of them was just a, right on the fence about to pull the trigger. You and- know, maybe Paul should run for president in 2024. (laughs) He would have my vote, man. So go to ProShopERP.com for more information. Yep. Hey, Metal Working Nation. Jim here. Hope you enjoyed this second part two interview with John Miller from Way of the Mill. That was actually the next thing that I was going to ask you about is like, you know, do you have like a formula or a proven process? Can you talk about what that is? Like, so in general, when you're at a shop and say they're at like a very basic level, what do they typically need help with in or without making like some big capital investment in order to take themselves from like basic million operations to more intermediate? And then what do they typically see to, to go from intermediate to more advanced million? Before you answer that, can I just ask a really quick question that I think is somewhat relatable? So from what I'm understanding about your mission is you're trying to help CNC shops become more efficient in the way that they machine on a milling machine, but it strictly lends itself mostly to production, high volume production. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That, that's certainly my personal expertise, yeah. but... But there's all, there's all those machining principles and fundamentals that you right. have knowledge of by applying it to a, a production job that you can carry over to short run. Like I'm sure you're very educated in work holding and you can apply work holding solutions to these people that would hire you. Right. I think the only difference between high volume machining is we have to get those details right every single time and we have to spend more time on it. So if if I'm doing five pieces, let's say, like in a prototyping mm-hmm. situation, yep. I can get away with cutting it very carefully, very slowly, right. and just get, the, get a good part out there, right? Now, when we need to turn up the knobs a little bit, things start to break down. Of course. Why did they break down? Now, that same knowledge as to why it broke down and why I cut a bad part, it doesn't just apply to production machining. It might be the reason why you and your prototyping scenario cut the bad part as well. It's the same knowledge. Right. The difference is in production, the stakes are, higher. The stakes are higher. And in production, we're probably going to break that process quicker than we do. Because in, we're turning the knobs up. That's right. That's right. right. Yep. So again, John, in your in your shop, that's really, they don't understand the fundamentals that you would be taking them through. How do they go from like the basics to more of an intermediate stage? Or what are they going to learn? I think the biggest thing is attention to detail is what moves shops the best. And that commitment to an attention to detail every single day from, and I mean, everything, putting the, the tool cleanly into a clean holder, then a tool holder that is able to run at the RPM that you want to run it in, tool balancing, right? 
good, you know, taking care of your spindle and the machine maintenance, taking care of your fixtures, making sure they're oiled. All this stuff adds up little by little. And if you look at every data point that you collect in a machining process, it has a bell curve. Every mistake we make in that, you know, within that process makes that bell curve grow just a little. Keep in mind, we're talking microns in a lot of these processes. It doesn't take much for every little finite piece to add its own micron here, there. And now we can't even cut a bore plus or minus a thou. Yeah, because you got like a stack. Exactly. Exactly. So that's kind of my view of the process overall is that it's a it's just a massive stack from the cutting tool to the tool holder to the spindle to the machine structure itself, the machine and its ability to handle, let's say, uh, thermal growth and uh, its repeatability. Does it have scales? Does it not? The work holding, the ability of the work holding to accurately position the part, clamp the part without distortion, without deflection. Is there stress release? Is there not? All of these things that maybe shops aren't even thinking about that in my experience, I've seen every one of these break and I have fixes and advice for every piece of this process, depending on what that customer is struggling with. And what do you think is uh, is holding most manufacturing leaders from making those improvements in their shop floor? Is it know-how? Is it time? What? Why haven't they already done these things? So some of it, I think, is just innocent ignorance. Okay. Right? They, they don't know because it hasn't come across their floor yet, right? Take a journey of a machinist, right, from the beginning till your considered experience, right? When you went into that, you maybe had an apprenticeship or a tech school or something like that, and and you learned what you needed. You knew how to put the vice in, you knew how to square it up, you knew how to put the tools in and touch them off, right? You kind of knew these basics, right? But there's nothing in the market right now other than, like we said, like your technology suppliers that are injecting knowledge from that point out. It's just the school of hard knocks Mm -hmm. from there up. And I guess some people are taught, like, you know, so you go to like Gemini's house and you're going to see it's real clean. Everything's put away. The, you know, it's vacuumed and stuff like that. And you go to Nick's house and there's like toys all over the place. There's food on the walls. (laughs) You know, (laughs) my wife's going to ask you to edit this out. (laughs) It's an analogy. I'm just kidding. So, and I guess it would be like the same thing if you aren't, you know, like Jim would teach those things into like the people that works for him. And like, you know, I was taught by my dad almost, we talked about this on the show before, 5S principles in running a cutting tool distributorship that you need to do these things. I mean, we're in an old building, but I mean, it's pretty clean and well organized, you know? And I was just, obviously, Brittany, I was just joking about- She doesn't listen to the podcast and I was totally kidding anyway. But I mean, yeah, I guess you're right. Like if you're not taught from the very beginning, you're like, well, why should I put things back to where they're supposed to or clean? up or do these things at the end of the day and you haven't learned those principles. So I guess a lot of it could be just that, that ignorance. Another thing that I heard you say, John, is you were talking about like every little piece of data that you collect. And Jim has kind of taken us through his journey of, you know, like, like you were saying, just kind of learning through how your father taught you and maybe collecting high level data, like, okay, what did we charge for the job? How long did it take us to tell us how much data you're collecting now? job to job compared to before after your transition to pro shop well significantly more and the way that we collect it is all digital rather than physical okay you know what i mean because years ago it used to be you know you'd get a print when you finally shipped a job the print was done and the machinist would have all kinds of notes written on the print or else post-it notes 
taped on the print, and you'd have to hold all that. But a lot of the knowledge is fundamental machinist knowledge. Yeah. You know, what's the correct way to hold a part? We all know that if you don't hold a part or fixture a part to its best ability and make it super rigid, you're gonna have it's gonna be gonna be degradation all the way down the so line. So how do right? you how do you use ProShop to like kind of define and standardize a, a process? So we'll do screenshots in Mastercam of the work holding, and that stays in there. We'll do what type of tools are we actually going to be using on the job. You might be asking me some questions I can't answer because that isn't part of what I yeah. intimately but, but, involved with. But your operator at the machine, he's got a screen nearby, and he can like literally see with pictures with pictures what exactly what process should be that's so different than hey jimmy make sure you set that fixture up the right way exactly like I taught you. we never did any we didn't take notes on yeah. setups and years you ago you never move to like what what you're describing oh this is Apple, super high every end every single detail is specified if you don't start somewhere and a lot of that is just supported by a good erp system right. pro shop yeah. with with those processes built in john you mentioned something about how, okay, so you go through school, you get a lot of theory, you go through your apprenticeship, you start making parts, and then you said there's the, the knowledge or the training kind of stops, and the rest of it is just learning by experience. I need your perspective on something I'm working on. So I, t- I talked about the Work Holding Wisdom blog, and, and it's kind of like the way of the mill. We have our educational content destination. And what I've been learning as I go through this process of creating all this content is in school, academia, you could, you could say, they're taught never include a brand, never point to a specific brand and say they have a device that works this way because they have to be totally unbiased, totally agnostic. And I think if you, like, like when you got hired and you didn't even know who Makino was, right? You had already gone through college. You were a smart guy. You got a good grade. You got a degree, but you didn't know who Makino was. I personally think there's a gap in education where if somebody created something where like, let's say you get your first job and they're like, hey, spec out the fixtures for these new jobs, you might know the fundamentals and the theory of work holding. But if you don't know like any of the brands in the market and how their devices work and which type of system you should apply to this type of application, you might struggle. So I wanted your perspective on that. Do you think guides like that are in demand? Do you think they would be helpful? Yeah. So I when I say I want to bring more of the knowledge to the shop side, yeah, I'm not excluding the suppliers from that by any means. Sure. Right? You can't. So, and I have great partnerships with, uh, not through the company, but just relationships I've fostered and people I've met throughout the years that I, I rely on certainly uh, to this day. But I think you have to inject the products. You have to know what the good products are. My point is just be open that it might be a hybrid solution, right? Bingo. And so that's what I'm trying to do with this. And I'm, I'm trying to collect people who don't work for a company that makes something because they're not going to be like locked into, oh, this is how AME taught me. This is how Shunk taught me. This is how Fifth Axis taught me. This is how my system works. So I might ask you to like give me some feedback on some of the earlier drafts on this thing before we release. Certainly. It. I, I think the trick is from my side of things, as soon as you get involved with a brand, You've biased yourself. Uh-huh. You have to be very careful, you know, with 
sponsorships sure. and shout outs sure. and, and, you know, in this sh- social media landscape, that's, it's its own currency. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, we're biased towards pro shop as an ERP system. I mean, we clearly Certainly. think that they're the best, but I mean, we're not going to, you know, make any apologies for that. Right. right. Yeah. We try to choose sponsors that align with like kind of a, what we believe and pro shop is one of them, but I, but I hear what you're saying. I'm, I'm biased towards Zengers as a cutting tool distributor. <laughs> yeah, right. Cause you know, the values of Zengers, you know, like, okay, I, I would trust this company. It is my company. But I think there's some real validity to your point. If every single one of the episodes we produced was sponsored by some other brand, they'd be like, these guys are just a bunch of talking heads. They're a bunch of sellouts. Right. They don't have any of their own thoughts. So, John, I have a question. So, great story, by the way. I you know, I totally, I, I, I feel your vibe. But what, what I want to know is, how long ago did you set out Way of the Mill? I mean, how long has it been in business? I started in July. Okay, so it's pretty fresh. Very pretty new. Green. And, and I kind of, the reason for that is, you know, 2020, it didn't look like it was going to quiet down by any means and uh, go back to normal. So I kind of felt like 2020, these these six months from July until the end of the year, were kind of my runway to get set up, to make connections, to hopefully get some marketing opportunities and, uh, and get myself out in the industry and introduce this concept. Because like I said, it is a new concept for kind of an independent expert or a trainer to come in and, and teach these things. And I'm not you know unaware of that, right? I need to introduce the concept as much as I need to introduce myself. Oh, for sure. Right? Well, I usually definitely. It's like, that's going to be the hardest part. It's sure. like your former job. It's an applications engineer that worked at Makino or it's the metalworking specialist that worked at your distributor or whatever. You know, it's not usually a completely unbiased consultant. Right. So kind of going through 2020, I set this up knowing it was going to be a setup year. And I hope 2021, you know, a lot of shops look internally and look at what they know challenge what they know and then go seek more knowledge and uh i'm here for that we definitely wish you the best in that endeavor for sure yeah and i want to know what your who your who your target customers who's your avatar who are you who you're reaching out towards we know who we're we're trying to target the manufacturing leader the c-suite we know that not our audience isn't obviously the cfo the ceo the c whatever the acronym you want to use, but what is yours? Who, who is that person? What do they look like? What kind of shop? So there's kind of two sides of the business, right? The training and the consulting. Yep. Two entirely different things. Right. So the consulting for me is we have a defined goal. It's in a contract and I'm going to come in and advise you towards that goal. Okay. Right. So, and, and people know consulting, they know what it is. They know what they're getting. It's just injecting my expertise to help you reach that end. Right. Mm-hmm. The training side is because it's more knowledge, it's for any shop. If you're a high volume production shop, listen, we're going to talk before I come in. I'm going to get a good feel for your organization. I'm a good good feel for the materials you cut, the types of parts you make, the, the, the cutters you use, the machines you have. And I'm tailoring those principles within what you have today to help you understand the limitations perhaps, but also the potential in what is already under your roof. Yeah. You're not going to tell someone they can achieve some certain goal if it's not realistic. You're going to do that discovery up front. Right. So coming in and training on these best practices, these principles, these fundamentals, these things that make good processes, like I say, it applies universally. So if it's a slightly larger shop or you straddle a line between I have half of prototyping and half maybe low volume production. Sure. Whatever that is, all this applies. And these lessons will be tuned 
towards what you're doing. Okay, gotcha. So on the website, um, I actually offer modules. If you go to my website and you contact me for training, it could be a week, could be two weeks. I have 15 modules up that I offer right out of the bat. They're, they're topics that I'm very confident in, in my knowledge. And I know I can share that knowledge with you and get a team of people trained up. So you look within that and you see what does my shop need? If it's not on the list, we can talk about it. Maybe there is something that I missed or something that you need that we can we can tailor those more towards. Mm-hmm. And basically, yeah, we go from there. It's, it's your time to get better and I'm lending my expertise to in order to achieve that. So I want to ask you a real technical question. We've had some super smart guys like yourself on this on this podcast before. Did you point at me when you said that? No, he did not. Jim. Okay, thank you. It was just kind of in your in your okay. general direction but not at you. Although I think you're a smart guy. Jim, thank you. And I appreciate you and you are entitled to your opinion. You've got lots of ways to I am entitled to my opinion. <laughs> but we won't go there. <laughs> Okay, so I don't know if you've heard of anything coming out of like the research group at Oak Ridge with like Tony Schmitz and David Barton and those guys are so friends for of me ours. personally, I'm I'm all over the news and yeah. you know that I have to be yeah if I, if I if I'm telling you I'm an expert at this, I have to keep my knowledge sharp. You have to be in tune with the research. So how much should the the operational leader be concerned with? doing like a tap test and understanding the whole dynamics of... Yeah, how, how does tap testing fit within like the framework of improving your operations? Let's discuss tap testing just in it in and of itself first, and then we'll talk about the app. Yeah, what is, what, what is tap testing first? So what tap testing is, is you basically, you have a laptop with some sensors. One sensor is your accelerometer. The other one is a, a hammer that knows how much force you hit. It's got like special instruments the on the hammer right. too, right? Yeah. So when you hit the end of your cutting tool with this hammer, it knows how hard you hit it, and the accelerometer reads the response of that tool. You get the natural frequency of your system. The reason I say system is because it is the cutting tool, the stick out, the holder, the taper connection, the spindle, what the spindle's attached to and what that is attached to. It's the system. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. So everything in life has a natural frequency. These chairs we're sitting on, everyone's seen the bridge that it was like wind speed that caused it, it got to all sorts of resonance. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. So everything has a natural frequency. Actually, Tony talked about that exact bridge on his episode. Okay, okay. Well, it's the ubiquitous example of natural frequency, right? Everyone understands it. So your system has a natural frequency. If we pass the tooth, the flute basically, into the material at that natural frequency, you will induce chatter. If the cutting force is high enough, which is your depth of cut. So what this software generates is a graph on the y-axis is your depth of cut. On the x-axis is your RPM. Uh-huh. So what frequency and how hard, right? That's basically what you're getting from those two numbers. The stability lobes are at the top, and that is denoted as a red zone. If you cut at that combination of RPM and depth of cut, you will chatter. Sure. What's unique about the stability lobes, though, is you notice, and the listeners should just search stability lobes and do an image search on uh, on Google or something. They'll, they'll see what I'm talking about. But within these lobes, as you notice, there's pockets where there's a specific RPM that can achieve a very high depth of cut, and it's still stable. And that's where your highest productivity is going to be. So you got to find the pocket at the highest level, turn it all the way up to where you can find one of those stable zones and then try to stick in that zone. Now, the problem is the real world comes in. Sure. Our spindles do not have unlimited horsepower. Even if the stability lobe says this won't chatter, it doesn't mean your spindle is going to take it. 
right? It just means the structure is rigid enough to do that. Yeah, if your spindle had a certain amount of horsepower, you could go up to that. Or we're limited by the depth of cut of the tool itself. It might be an inserted, you know, end mill and not a full fluted end mill, right? Or a solid carbide. We're also limited by the surface speed. If I'm cutting titanium or cast iron or something, I'm in different areas along that RPM chart where maybe I can't go without torching that tool. Mm -hmm. So this tap testing, it will give you very good data with which you can choose speeds and feeds. However, it does not supersede the real world. Sure. So it's a useful tool, but it's not the end-all, be-all of improving your machine. What's the practical application of how somebody should should be using it? Okay, so one way I look at the... And should every shop be using it? No, absolutely not. No, not every shop should be using it. This is super high end. I just want you to know very few... I don't even know anybody in my... Of my peers, it's using this tap testing. So in my experience, if you know how to optimize speeds and feeds within the parameters and you understand your machine's horsepower and torque chart, you can do some very high removal rate cutting and not chatter. Right. The difference is- Torque holding is is super important too. It really is. I caution people on that though. Why? Because in my experience- we get to, you know, if you're doing f- fifth axis and tabbing and stuff like that, this doesn't really apply to you. Yeah, we talked about that on the last episode where where you're milling it so close and then you just snap it off. Because you control the rigidity and you can clamp the hell out of it if you want. Yeah, but you don't want to have a part sticking out 10 inches from the vise and you're trying to cut out here and there's all this vibe, chatter and vibration. Well, going. you can actually tap test the part. Yeah, of course you could. Of course, uh, you and could. get that frequency because that might be the the limiter and mm. not the tool itself. So there's limited practical application of of using the technology, right? So I I tend to view machining as markets, right? So like in automotive, for example, we're cutting die castings. There's no more than eight or ten thou material on any surface. So therefore, we don't have a depth of cut to speak of. Mm-hmm. You're pretty safe to run a lot of RPMs with all your tools. Medical is the same way. You might be cutting like a knee forging or something like that that's already material optimized. Mm-hmm. We don't have a speakable depth of cut. Therefore, we're pretty free to run the gamut. You're doing RPMs. more like finishing than anything. Exactly, okay, exactly. Gotcha. Even automotive like forgings and stuff, right? They're material optimized. We're taking the depth of cut variable away or we're greatly limiting it. And then maybe one roughing tool chatters. I'm not going to get out a tap tester to solve that. I'm just going to play with the knobs and make it happen. Sure. And, and it's a small part of my process. What about like the aerospace machining where they're removing 90% of the billet? That's where tap testing? Yeah. Occur? So in that case, the billet you're bringing in to a, a machine that has three meters travel, you can't scrap that billet. Right. So you have no room for guesswork and we're not going to buy more of that material you need to be tap testing, gotcha. right? Also, machines that are capable of, of taking in that kind of work, they're trying to take advantage of this tap testing phenomena by having huge RPM numbers and huge horsepower numbers. Two machines that come to mind, like the Mag series from Makino and the Steric Eco Speeds, right? Yep. Those are 150 horsepower spindles. You can't play around it. So the, those big billets where they're removing 90% exactly. of the material? 
it's like seven, eight hundred cubic inches of removal. Rate, yeah, our right? big customer is using almost all those mag machines. Yeah, so, yeah. so if if you were to you know summarize it in a nutshell, where you'd use tap testing would be just large removal rates, large billets, right. ho- large horsepower machines. Yep. I think a good kind of maybe rule of thumb, if you want to call it that, is if you have more than fifty kilowatts in your machine and you plan on using it, tap testing can help you. If you have less than that, so you're down in forty taper territory. It's not going to move the needle for you a lot. If I have a 10-tool process and maybe the first two are roughers, tap testing in the amount that that's going to change my metal removal rate doesn't move the entire process a lot. So it's easier just the guy's already at the machine, tune the knobs, keep making the points, right? So I I have a personal question, John, that I want your advice on. So my team, as a part of like our our VIP operations, we work alongside the owner of a machining company, like say Jim's company. Usually it's more high production shops. So we help them to make continuous improvements in order to drive bottom line savings. So from your experience in kind of working independently, what would you recommend to my team in order to, you know, serve our clients better? So- When you work for a distributorship, there's a challenge that the expertise that you guys are gaining is coming, you're kind of second order expertise. Mm -hmm. And and again, it's not to knock on a distributorship. There's so many advantages to single sourcing a lot of your machining process, right? But the expertise that you're trained on from the factory of the things you represent, not all of that is getting through to the customer. So- my proposal is, and I've talked with other distributorships about this, is let me train your team to understand what makes good and bad processes, good strategies for moving the needle when you need to, right? And now you just inject the products, right? We don't have to talk product at all, but once you learn these principles, you're already going to be thinking, I got a fixture for that idea. I've got tools for that idea, right? And, and you can tie that together into a more tidy package. I like it. Thank yeah, you. That's val- I was just thinking like the whole time you were talking, I was like, I know you worked like directly with the end user, but companies like Jason's would be a key market if I were. Yeah. To yeah, absolutely. So I get what you're doing. You're trying to optimize milling. You don't do any turning, right? Not my expertise, but boring in a milling machine is turning. So basically, a lot of it applies. Basically. But that wasn't my question. My question is, do you teach 5S principles too? Yes. Okay. Because I would think that would be a big addendum to what you're trying to solve. Because 5S is huge. It is. In any optimization effort, right? Right. You, you want to do easy and low risk and then get to the end of the process, which is I'm going to... And then I'm going to turn up the knobs and I'm maybe going to rip this part out of the fixture, right? That should be kind of your order of optimization. Uh If I walk up to an optimization effort and the operator's spinning in circles, grabbing this thing or that thing. Oh, I got to go get a mic. The raw material's not next to the machine. I know. What what am I doing here? So I think there's a lot you can do to make sure that at the machine, everything is as optimized as possible. And then we put the technical inside the work zone. Okay. So my kind of what I tell people is I support everything in and around the work zone. I feel like we're talking about key markets for you. I feel like another key partnership would be like lean continuous improvement companies where you've got all these waste reduction gurus and then you go in there as the metal removal specialist partnering with them. Sure. I I feel like that would be another key one. I'm always thinking about partnerships. It's my thing. So John, this has been great. I've truly 
learn something from your expertise. And I think like just your experience out in the machining industry is going to be valuable to, to U.S. manufacturing. And I really hope the Metalworking Nation has learned something today. So thank you for that. Certainly. I appreciate being here. And uh, yeah, I've only been out for six months now and I'm already on making chips. So it's, it's yeah, a blessing. Yeah, no, this is good. By the way... I want you to look at a print before you leave. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> you know, I was talking you know to my good... son today, and then we're like, we're like, he's oh, I don't know how I'm going to hold it. So I just, just want to pick your brain. I want right, to see, sure. you know. see what you know. I'm there happy. You go. You know. Yeah, happy to do it. You know that's a good guest when it's a two-part episode. We've only had him so often. Yes. Yeah, we'll have to bring John back. You bet. So did you learn something today, I Jim? did. What did you learn? If you're not making chips. You're not making money. Bam. Bam. Metalworking Nation, listen up. Manufacturing is challenging. You need to think differently. The day-to-day whirlwind of urgencies, the pressure to grow, customer demands, workforce development, new machine tools and robots, the list goes on and on. It is possible to stay ahead of the game of manufacturing, but you can't do it alone. We're here to give you access to exclusive content from other leaders, as well as videos, blogs, show notes, and more resources designed to equip and inspire you on making chips. Maybe your first two are roughers, and the rest is... <laughs> nice. <laughs> that was awesome. Try that one again, John. <laughs> that was a first. Two hundred fifty episodes, and we got a first here, folks. Listen, Metalworking Nation. If this pandemic has taught me one thing, it's that we need to accelerate our digital transformation. You can't get into shops the same way anymore. Business isn't done the same way as it once was, and it's only going to continue to trend in that direction. Let me tell you about a company that is doing just that. It's Zometry. So what is Zometry? Zometry is custom manufacturing on demand. They have over 5,000 partners, and their network has the capacity you need for prototyping and production. They're AS9100 and ISO 9001 certified, registered with ITAR. You can get an instant quote today for any of the services that you might need, whether it be CNC machining, 3D printing, injection molding, sheet metal, finishing services. You can even buy materials. Zometry is trusted by the engineers and purchasing leaders at the world's most successful companies like BMW, GE, NASA, Dell, and Bosch. Listen, if you want to turbocharge the way you make custom parts, check out Zometry. It's really easy. X-O-M-E-T-R-Y dot com and you can get a quote today.